I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Benjamin Ehrlich. He's the author of the book, The Brain in Search of Itself, essayist whose work has appeared in the best American short stories of 2023. Um, His other work has been featured in the Paris Review, Lit Hub, Scientific American, uh, the Gettysburg Review, and the New England Review, among other important outfits Ben, a pleasure to see you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, Let me ask you to begin with, how did you discover the principal subject um, of the brain in search of itself? Um, Was it some source material you were reading or what, what was the genesis of this project from its inception? Well, a friend of mine sent me an email with an image a a drawing of a brain cell that Cajal, the subject of my book, had produced in the late 19th century. And I had almost like a religious experience when I saw this drawing. It was like uh, the Sistine Chapel for me and uh, all these sensations in my body. And I start thinking, is this the seat of the mind? What am I looking at? Is this consciousness itself? And um, I just went down rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And that was 12 years ago. Um, that's how long it took me to finally produce the book after that initial seed. And this neuroscientist, um, this, this person that you're profiling, um, did you, had you heard his name, uh, before in any scientific context? Um, and as you began to undertake the project, what was the facet of his career or exploration of science that most interested you? I was shocked that I had never heard of him before. But on the other hand, I never took a college level science course. Every intro to neuroscience course includes a biographical sketch about him. I had just never encountered that before. I was a literature major. And so for me, after seeing that drawing that really touched me so deeply, it was Cajal's love of literature that really attracted me to his biography, to his, um, he wrote an autobiography and he describes, you know, books like Don Quixote really influencing his development. And I have experienced that myself with literature. And so initially it wasn't anything scientific about his career at all. It was more about his, his um, personal psychological development. And what, what was the link between that original drawing and that psychological uh, development? He, he also is credited with recognizing um, a precocious insight in science um, in, in, in his lifetime. But if you were to take us through kind of the drawing itself and what intrigued you about the drawing to, you said the person, his personal development, um, what was the, the kind of trajectory, the line there between this, this drawing and what, and then what you found so intriguing about his own growth? Well, I contend in the book and I contend, you know, personally that image making is similar in art and science that we expect science to be objective. But in fact, scientific images are created by human beings with a wealth of experience and particular biases and they're limited by their tools at their disposal. So everything that Cajal experienced from the small town where he was born in the mountains of northern Spain to the books that he read 
I think all contributed to his vision of the neuron, which is what he's credited, credited with discovering. And that's what I saw an image of as a neuron. So my contention is that you can't separate the art from the artist, even though it's science. You say, and for our audience, Kahal uh, is credited with discovering um, the, the most formative and essential knowledge about the, the neuron and the nervous system. Um, and as you were unearthing his, his life, what, um, you, you know, what was it about his particular scientific process being informed by um, literature as a student of literature um, that, that appealed to you in, in other words, how he made his discovery mm -hmm. um, and as it really related to a new understanding about the, the nervous system. So the, the neuron is another type of cell. It's a specialized type of cell. But at the time, there was a disagreement about what constituted the material in the brain. Most people believed it was a fixed, what they called a reticulum, like a tangle of fibers. Uh, Cajal insisted that neurons were individuals and his favorite characters in the romantic novels that he grew up with were individual heroes. He was a staunch individualist in his upbringing. And my contention is not, a, of course, that that's enough to make a scientific discovery, but it's interesting to look at how someone's individual personal psychological development might help them identify a scientific discovery when the time is right. Of course, technically he was expert he had a genius um, capacity for visualization and all of that is most relevant, but combined with his personal interests and in psychology, I think is what explains the discovery in my opinion. And for those who were searching for a, a contemporary context to understand why what he accomplished was foundational and how it's related to ongoing scientific understanding and pursuit of, of new learning and innovation. W would you say um, that, you know, you agree that his work um, should be studied because it is relevant to the daily practice of neuroscience today? Absolutely. His his book on, on the histology of the nervous system is really like on the origin of the species for neuroscience. Um, anybody who's performing neuroscientific studies on neurons owes their work to Cajal. Cajal also did functional uh, research. He was limited by his technology at the time, but he had functional theories related to how the, he studied the anatomy of neurons through a technique called histology, where he would section tissue and stain it with chemicals and then examine it under the microscope. But he made assumptions about how neurons function based on that. And it turns out that over 100 years later, his discoveries and his theories about the functions of neurons are proven correct. And what, just for context, what is kind of the, the current study of, of neurons right now? How, how is it taking shape and what is it most focused on? Neuroscience... I'm no expert on contemporary neuroscience, but it's a kind of amalgam of many subfields. So you have people doing anything from, you know, cognitive behavioral neuroscience to um, molecular neuroscience. So 
Um, for a lot of people, Kahal exists as kind of a spiritual, spiritual guide. I've, I've met, and I mentioned this in the book, a number, like a number, meaning more than a couple of people who have tattoos of Kahal's drawings on their bodies. <laughs> so he really is kind of a legendary figure in the field. Much of your book also is a, an artistic portrait and, and compelling narrative of Spanish history. Um, and Spain is is in the news again. We'll, we're recording this um, and uh, will not air imminently. But for the past many years, there's been a, a separatist movement that formed in the Catalonian region to represent their interests. Um, and uh, there is controversy around the political class and specifically ensnaring the current prime minister about his uh, desire to forgive the separatists in order to coalesce a, a majority, uh, presumably to legislate more effectively. Um, for that, for our viewers, that's a, a piece of contemporary history. But I wonder how you see it, because you um, chronicled a period of the, the life of Spain um, and, and the life of Cajal um, at, you know, an interesting point when there were, were wars at the beginning of his career as a, as a doctor through, you know, the, the, um, you know, the discoveries that he made in science. Um, but, but so how, how do you see, you know, Spain from, from certainly a very informed and unique perspective? Well, again, I don't know much about contemporary Spain. However, when Cajal lived in the 19th century, it was a particularly chaotic time. I think there were like 34 governments in the in the 1800s, and uh, you know, Cajal fought in a war overseas in Cuba, nearly died of malaria and dysentery. He was a patriot, but not a jingoist. I think it's an important distinction. Mm -hmm. He uh, lived through what was called the disaster of 98, 1898 where Spain lost its final colonies and there was this kind of reckoning within Spanish society about how to marshal resources and some of the intellectual poverty that had maybe taken hold and who was ruling and how. And Cajal was very involved in that. He became sort of a public intellectual, but he was always very staunch about the unity of Spain. Um, I contend that he kind of saw Spain as like a neuron he wanted Spain as an individual entity to be in contact with other individual entities as nations and to work together in much the same way that neurons um, express and share currents with each other to, for there to be a kind of nervous system of countries throughout the world. Is there a sense you have um, that science was not taken for granted at the time of his life in the way that it, it may be today as a function of um, some modern innovations. Um, is there a feeling in, in understanding the reaction to his discoveries that there was more scientific alertness or literacy or curiosity? Uh, and is that something you're able to discern in your, in your research? That may be true in other countries, but Spain was a scientific backwater at the time there there was pretty much no understanding of Cajal's discoveries and he was so discriminated against by other, you know, the central European countries that when he made his major discovery and brought it to an anatomical Congress in Berlin, 
he couldn't even get passersby to stop and look at his microscope for a while because they just heard his funny accent and saw, you know, how different he looked. So uh, even even when he died, he, he died a, a national hero, but almost nobody understood why. He was just a, a venerated uh, personage for his wisdom and and his what he represented in terms of triumph, Spanish triumph. When you say hero, um, it, it wasn't specifically the the science that was being celebrated at the time of his death. It was it was his um, patriotic, paternal figure in kind of the, the connectedness to to the country. Is that is that what you're saying? He represented, like I said, a triumph, a national triumph. His Nobel Prize was a huge deal. I mean. He, he was the second Spaniard to win a Nobel Prize, but the first one was in literature. So the idea that a Spaniard could win a Nobel Prize in science or, or physiology and medicine, as it was called, as it's called, was completely foreign to anybody who was who was living at the time. And it was like a, beyond a curiosity. It was like it, it filled the newspapers. People came to his house and cheered him on from his balcony you know, on his balcony. It was like a, he was a sensation. What was um, to you the most surprising or interesting part of of writing the book and in researching um, the man and the scientist and the the collective impact? You mentioned his his own personal growth, um, separate from the intellectual findings of scientific discovery. Um, but but what what in the search of um, this biography, um, what struck you uh, most potently that that we may not have covered yet? I think I it was the discovery of his dream his dream diaries, which was the subject of my first book. Um, he hated Freud. He was jealous of Freud's popularity within Spain, and he thought Freud was pseudoscientific. So he set out to disprove Freud by keeping a dream diary in which he pretty much just. Um, vindicates Freud to the extent that I think he decided not to publish because he realized that he might have some egg on his face, but the dreams are extremely moving to me, to me as someone who studied his life. And he was quite a repressed individual. He suffered abuse at the hands of his father and teachers as a child, but never talks about it really explicitly. So, and also lost young children to um, disease. And those show up in his dreams, but he refuses to articulate or express or theorize about them. And there's something tragic about saying, um, I drown holding my daughter. And then in terms of uh, conclusions, he writes none at all, you know, as though as though that's not an obvious um, reference to the death of his young daughter. So that was really kind of a treasure trove of uh information about his character yeah that that's fascinating and what what do you surmise um do you do you think at all it was was it just the the contentiousness with freud or the jealousy of freud or was it at all the idea that he wanted to separate dream from science there there's now a a growing field a very young field but um there are some scholars who want to study dreams to to establish kind of what they can inform about the human brain and 
and also how they can interplay with new technologies. Um, but I could, I could imagine a kind of resistance to the idea that this is the, the subconscious and like non, not cognitively functioning world that we should study. It's not, it's not fair game, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think, you know, Cajal and Freud at that, at that time, I think Cajal was representing what you might call the neurobiological view of dreams, where you can study, you know, auditory and visual phenomena, if there's like, something going on in terms of you're seeing things during a dream, maybe you can study, you know, what's happening in, in your neurons while that's happening. And Freud, of course, is more theoretical and more abstract so i think kahal was trying to he wasn't he wasn't saying dreams weren't worth studying i think he was saying they needed to be studied scientifically and i think he dismissed freud as a pseudoscientist it, it brings to mind an episode we did with noah hutton on his work and a question that i posed to him about who if anyone is not just trying to understand what's going on with neurons in our sleep and in our dreams, but actually the, the concept of memory and dreams and how we can remember dreams, um, did even if he didn't write about, reflect on his dreams from the scientific perspective, did he at all establish whether he thought that um, it, it recording our dreams um like that that there could be um there could be technology in the future that could record our dreams in a way that would tell us something about to teach us in our conscience not you know in our on our consciousness not just our subconscious i i'm just wondering it, it seems like a kind of advanced ai era insight that he might not have been capable of possessing but he was a very precocious person and scientist and i and i just wonder if he had he had any commentary on that question of um the degree to which we can, our dreams can inform our lives and, and help better inform our lives. He he didn't. I think he would have taken the opposite view, which is I think he dismissed dreams as kind of random activity of. I think what he what he believed is that we have our waking everyday normal, let's say, neurons and their activity. And then when they shut down while we're sleeping, there's this random other activity that means nothing. I think he would say it's sound and fury. Right. I'm still wondering if in our lifetimes there will be any kind of technology that does it for us um, in, in effect, because it's, I think, laborious and also very inconsistent to be able to monitor the content of your dreams and Noah and I talked about whether there may be a day when we can record our dreams in the way that we TiVo things or record something on YouTube TV. Uh, and to me, it's that's an endlessly fascinating question. 
It's interesting you bring up Noah because we've been friends since we were 12 years old, as it happens. I, I, I figured there was some connection uh, in your in your interests. Um, but how, how do you see the future of, of your work um, as someone who is a practice biographer of a scientist um, and making the themes and content of the work accessible and um, relevant for questions that people are considering, like the one I just presented yeah. to you about, about dreams uh, that you uh, forewent. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I welcome your thoughts on that subject too. Well, I think um, I was, I was, my work was aided by a grant from the Sloan Foundation for the Public Communication of Science and Technology. And I took that role very seriously. I had scientific advisors that had to okay my work to make sure that it was accurate. So I think that a scientific biographer has a double burden. There is a burden of accuracy to the life of the subject and then a burden of accuracy to the life of the science. And um, I don't know that I'll do a biography of another scientist. This, it, this just happened to captivate me. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what my next subject is gonna be, but, uh, as a non-scientist, I think there's an advantage as well of not being, you know, no, not being a kind of insider and being able to explain things for the, for the general reader. Like I sort of put myself in the reader's shoes. And if, if I can understand something, I just explain it the way that I understand it because I have no prior knowledge or expertise. So um, I think there is a benefit to being a science biographer who doesn't really know science well. The idea of a brain in search of itself, it's a pretty, it's a mesmerizing, captivating one that, you know, we're firing the cylinders of our brain to do basically anything at any time and how we're thinking about studying, in effect, um, firing the brain to assess what the brain is actually doing. Um, that's the way you you framed it from one perspective. Um, what was the what did you take away from the both the introspective and philosophical idea of that that a, the brain is searching itself? I think that that's what defines neuroscience, and that's what makes neuroscience interesting to me. Um, I think that. As I said, I studied literature and I think that uh, literary output or artistic output is a way of trying to understand ourselves. And, but that is like mediated by the, um, by the work. It's like a, it's like a, like a secondary object that's created by, by, by way, by means of, you know, that we can kind of try to extract some insights about humanity. But when you're looking directly at neurons, which we believe at this point in time are uh, responsible for our activity. There's a, there's a self, a necessary self-reflection that's happening. Like it is really the epitome of self-reflection and that like um, feedback loop of like reflecting on looking at neurons that are looking at, that are then looking at us that are looking at neurons. It's just like entranced me. What do you think Kahal would, would think of, of, the state of neurobiology and, and our understanding today, what, what would he, 
if anything, be surprised by in the advances of an understanding since his death? And, and what would he still want to find out that we don't know? Well, I think that he it's important to just note that he was a curmudgeon. So he probably wouldn't have liked a lot of things just because he even as technology advanced towards the end of his life he kept doing histology, this laborious process of dissection and staining and microscopy. Um, but I'd, I'd have to think that he would be um, enthralled by the imagery that we have now, you know, clarity and rainbow and fMRI. Um, I think that he would, I think that that would titillate him. And uh, I know that he wishes that we could have he could have found the secret of consciousness like i think every neuroscientist secretly wishes that even if they won't admit it but i think there's something noble and kind of quixotic about knowing you can't find the secret of consciousness in your lifetime and yet waking up every day and studying neurons anyway and that that um devotion and that vow is something that really attracted me to his character what is that enigma still when you refer to a secret that still hasn't been uncovered? Because I feel like a lot of a lot of study and data points are out there at this point. So what what is what is still the the question of the secret of of consciousness? I'm again, I'm 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 no expert, but I guess it's qualia. It's like why is green green? Why do we see green when we when we look at a green thing? Um, we may know mechanically, like how from comatose state to wakefulness, you know, what kind of transitions are happening there, but we don't know why the world appears the way it does to us. And I think that. So perception of surroundings and to some extent behavior too. Yeah, everything, you know, why, right. Like why did we just internal experience, internal subjective experience. Like the the whole sort of theater of the universe that we experience, how is that? How does that come to be? Great. Well, I encourage all of our listeners and viewers to check out Ben's work and his study of the dreams of Kahal and and the biography of Kahal in the brain in search of itself, Santiago Ramon Kahal and the story of the neuron. Benjamin Ehrlich, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, The Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.